Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, global and local perspectives on the environment with your host, Melinda Tuhus. My show today has several wonderful parts. First is a conversation with a meteorologist who's running for Congress, partially on a climate platform, and who just won his Democratic primary race. I interviewed him before the primary. Then you'll hear from two more people I met on the Walk for Appalachia's Future against the Mountain Valley Pipeline from May 25th to June 4th. Stay tuned. Eric Sorensen is running in the 17th Congressional District in Northern Illinois. He started by telling me how he got into meteorology. This goes back to when I was a kid. I was very fearful. Of, of storms when I was a kid. The meteorologist on TV, we shared the same name. His name was Eric. And also uh, my dad was uh, an engineer. Um, and so we had a model railroad, like what's behind me today. And it was about fixing things. And he taught me that there's always a way to solve the problem, even if the problem is, is very, very complex. Um, and so that made me wanna become a meteorologist and figure out how the weather works. Um, and so I graduated from Northern Illinois University, became a meteorologist, uh, moved down to East Texas for about four and a half years. Um, and then 9-11 uh, happened. Um, I got uh, very homesick. And so I, I took the $12,000 pay cut to come to Rockford, Illinois, and it was the best decision that I've ever made in my life uh, because I got to be the Eric on Channel 13 in Rockford, and it was worth it everything to work in my hometown, but, but also Melinda to be able to be in a position where um, I am connecting my home with science. And so I took that risk 15 years ago now of talking about climate change on TV when no one else was. And the reason I did it is because um, to be quite honest, there was not much climate in the curriculum for the atmospheric science degree. Uh, but here was the thing. I learned about it. It was up to me as the meteorologist to learn. And as I learned, I was compelled to tell my to tell the story um, to the viewers because we were getting the tornadoes in January. We were getting the the 500 year floods to happen year after year. And so I was just connecting people with what they were seeing out their window to this big thing about climate change that people thought was just the polar bear. And, and I was connecting it to local events and to be able to say that, you know, especially in an agricultural area that, you know what, your livelihood depends on how we react to this. And, and I heard back from conservatives and, and, uh, and progressives that both said the same thing. Thanks, Eric, for talking about this, keeping the opinion and your politics out, but you're focused on the science and we trust you for the science. And that's the key right there. And so after all of this time working here for 20 years in this district, when my congresswoman said that she was retiring, um, I thought, here we are, hopefully at the tail end of a pandemic, um, in, a, in a world where we need more science and better science communication. Um, it needs to happen right here in my home. And that's why I'm running for Congress. Wow. So there's so many. That's so interesting um, because 
you know, we had, uh, thankfully, Connecticut isn't nearly as battered as most of the rest of the country by these crazy things, although we have had our, you know, we've had certainly some, and there was something, I can't remember what it, what it was, and it was obviously, you know, it, it would have been a perfect time for the weather guy, the meteorologist, to talk about climate, not a word, mm -hmm. not one word, they never, ever talk about it, I don't even watch it very often, I have heard that there's some effort, and I don't even know who's behind it, to try to get meteorologists to talk about climate. It's like some organized thing. Do you know anything about that? Yes, I was one of the very first meteorologists to be a part of the program. Um, it's, it was called Climate Matters in the Newsroom. Now it is Climate Central. Um, and now I believe there are 700 meteorologists in the country um, that are connected that focus on, you know, and, and whether it's on in within the broadcast or whether it is online, um, it is localized to people's geographical areas. And that was one of the things that early on we meteorologists said, that the way that we were going to connect people with meteorology was going to be through what the people were seeing out their windows, which is, is what I did from the beginning. And, and so it is very successful. Um, Yale um, has had um, a, a big influence on making sure that we have the communication and have the um, ability for this program to succeed. But, um, but now Climate Central just uh, announced uh, um, that they're uh, teaming up with the Weather Channel um, to produce more, more climate change um, and sustainability stories. So um, you have great name recognition mm -hmm. from being on TV for 22 years. How much does your, you know, your elevator pitch with, you know, the voters, how much do you talk about climate or, you know, is it one of many things, you know, that people, you think people will be concerned about that you talk about? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly, uh, I mean, front and center today, um, it is, you know, it's inflation. I mean, that's, that's the elephant that's in the room. Um, and we have to make sure that um, our government is working to solve these problems. And it's, it's a, you know, it's much like climate change. There's no silver bullet. But when I talk with people here in this district, we can have and we do have really great conversations about climate, you know, especially in the agricultural community. When I was getting my petitions signed to even get on the ballot, um, I was in one of the smaller towns in Western Illinois, Kiwani, and a gentleman and his wife were coming up to me and I said, hi, I'm Eric Sorensen. I'm the weather guy from Channel 8. I'm now running for Congress. Would you sign my petition? And the guy said, oh, yeah, Eric, sure, sure. And the pen went down to the paper and he, he said, well, you're running as a Democrat. I, Eric, I, I, I'm a Republican. I don't know if I can do this. And I said, well, that's all right. I said, so what do you do for a living? And he said, well, I'm a farmer. I, you know, we, we've got about 500 acres up by Prophetstown. I said, that's great. Uh, he's third generation farmer. And I said, well, you've got to see how the climate is changing where you are, where we get four, five inches of rain in an hour out of a storm in the summertime, but then it doesn't rain for 20 days. And that affects your livelihood um, because you're having to, to juggle drought and flash flood. And he said, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, there's no way that you can deny this anymore. But Eric, I just don't know what we're supposed to do about it. Um, and that's when I said, well, that should be my job. My job will be to go to Congress, be the first meteorologist in nearly 50 years, um, and, and find some of the solutions. Um, I, 
I believed instead of there being a silver bullet for climate change, there's just silver buckshot. We've, there's going to be so many different decisions that need to be made. I want to be able to help you make that decision. And I want to come back to your farmer and, and to your farm and talk with my Republican friend about the solution so that, you know what, we can make sure that this farm is good for three and four more generations. And then he goes, well, he leaned in. He goes, now you sound like a Democrat is trying to make sense. And he, and he got his pen out and he signed his name. Also, as he was signing his name, I looked up at his wife and she had the smile on her face. She didn't even have to say anything, but she told me with her smile, congratulations for just breaking through the outer shell of my husband. And that's how we're going to win talking about climate in middle America. And that's how we're going to win this seat for Congress. You're listening to Eric Sorensen, a meteorologist who's running for Congress in Illinois, and he did win his primary race. So if you do win the seat, and I understand with your, especially your broad name recognition, you are, are, you are leading, is that correct? Yes, we're, we're leading in the polls um, and, and looking at the, the metrics of the polling. Um, we're up by 4%. Uh, but what's more interesting than that, Melinda, is when, when people got more information about every one of the candidates and they learned that I was the meteorologist and the scientist, that's when my polling nearly doubled. It went up to 7%. And so what we need to do today, it's communication to the voter. So when they know that the meteorologist that they know and they trust is running for Congress, then they will vote. Um, and that's going to be the most essential thing going into uh, election season. Well, let me ask you another question about, I think it'll be a miracle if the Republicans don't take both houses of Congress. Um, so you're likely to be a Democrat in, you know, in, in one of the houses that is controlled by the Republicans. And that doesn't sound like a very pleasant place to be. So, um, Obviously, if you're running, you're hoping that other Democrats win too. But if the Republicans control, say, even just the House, how do you think you could be effective with a climate message when they're just still in denial? Um, I think it's, it's understanding that there are a lot of districts that look like this one, um, that there are a lot of challenges with respect to climate that don't just happen in this district. They're happening in other districts as well. Um, and so it's being the communicator of the science um, to um, the other legislators, to join the teams that are already there um, with respect to science, um, to join those teams and be able to find out where we can communicate most effectively. And that may be to not only um, the people that live in different districts, but to make sure that there's a resource there uh, for other members of Congress. How do we talk about climate? Um, because it's not something that we can um, ignore. Um, and that's not a winning strategy for anyone. Um, but my role will be to be the, the communicator um, and the marketer um, that, we, that we've needed with respect to climate for a long time. Okay, great. And just to clarify, did you retire from your meteorologist job or you left it so you could run for Congress? So I had to walk away. Um, I had to make this decision. Um, and it, it was a decision that, um, that took a lot, of, a lot of questions, not only to my family, but to my colleagues. Um, I, I reached out to uh, 
meteorologists across the country. And, and they told me, go for this, do it. You've got to prove that you can do this. Um, but what was great was I heard inspiration um, as I was asking meteorologists across the country um, whom I've known in 20 years. And they said, Eric, if you find a way to do this and you're successful and you have, find the path, I may think about running for Congress where I live because I've worked on TV in, this, in, in, in my market for 25 years. And I believe that we need better communication of science and climate. Um, and I'll tell you what, um, one of the greatest conversations I had was with one of my colleagues and he said, Eric, I, I might think about running for Congress, but where I am, we might be on the other side of the aisle. And I said, well, that's okay. And he goes, yeah, it will be because, because we'll be on the same side of climate. Oh, so, so imagine what happens if in two, four, six years, if we start getting meteorologists elected to Congress that are communicators of science, that are that have the, the, the strong foundation in their in their local markets and they're not connected with big oil and these in these big huge uh these dump trucks full of dark money yeah that would be a that would be a change <laughs> it would, so, it, it, it would, I, are it would you, really change everything yeah okay and when is the when is the primary so june 28th and do you know who is there is there a primary on the republican side so the, the interesting thing here is the Republican on the other side who moved here just to run for this um, is largely unopposed. And, and so she has $1.5 million in the bank. And so they are just working on flipping the seat at all costs. And uh, it's a MAGA Republican. Um, so it's going to be a MAGA Republican against somebody who's communicated science here for 20 years. Well, man, I wish you luck. I really do. Well, we'll, we'll stay in touch. We always give people um, a place to go to get more information, which I guess could be your, your, your congressional web, you know, your, your campaign website. But um, I also, which is what you told me before, right? Ericforillinois.com? Yes, it's Ericforillinois.com. Okay. And then we maybe we could send people to one of those like to climate central if they want more information about that aspect right it's, yeah it's climatecentral.org okay um, it's a great resource um that's connected right to your particular um location yeah i've never gone there myself i'll check it out yeah and um, there's and there's great uh, imagery that you can share for social um yeah and uh you know and and lastly um, one thing when when people go to the to the website, um, the the reason that um, in, in fact, I had to learn this myself being the science communicator um, is we need donations. Um, we we've gotten donations from all across America. Um, and these are real people. It's a people powered campaign um, because that's going to be the way that we're able to get the message out. Um, and, and so it's important for people, even if they've never donated to a political candidate before, um, to make a donation um, in the name of science, uh, because it's, it's about making the communication that science works to the voter before they go and vote. And that's right. the most important piece. Right, right, right. Okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. It was great to see you. Okay, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Eric Sorensen running to keep the House of Representatives blue. 
Next, you'll hear from Pam Nixon, who used to work for the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection and who spoke in Charleston on the second day of our Walk for Appalachia's Future. There was a fountain running in the background, so you'll have to pay close attention. I'm a former environmental advocate here with the West Virginia DEP, and as she said, I, I, I also was part of people concerned about chemical safety, which used to be people concerned about MIC, which used to be made here. I don't know if you guys know what MIC is, but it's the chemical that killed people in Bhopal, India. It was made in Institute, also made in Institute, West Virginia. They're no longer making it. And they're no longer making it. They stopped making it in Institute in 2011. Yeah, and it's not not been that long ago. Yeah. And, it, and the, and the first incident that killed the people in Bhopal happened in 1984, and they continued making it until 2011 in Institute. And they only stopped then because there was an incident there at, a, at one of the uh, other units at the chemical plant that near that was only like less than 100 feet from uh, the MIC above ground storage tank and part of the shrapnel did damage the tank, so that's the only reason. And they were taken to court by people concerned about MIC at the time, and, uh, and, and also EPA helped uh, talk them out of using the MIC. Okay, we're here at the DEP today because DEP is supposed to be the agency that, that protects the environment and protects human health. Uh, many times the DEP may even write uh, legis legislation or, or regulations to protect human health, but it has to go through the legislature. Our West Virginia legislature has the last say on much of our on much of our uh, on our environmental regulations. So even when we have stringent environmental regulations and it goes through the legislature. They amend it, and they or they'll gut the legislation to where it's more, it's weaker, and and have no, and it has no teeth. Right. Uh, last week, since I was here, I, I I retired from the DEP in 2014, and since I left, they have now uh, less environmental enforcement officers than they did in 2014, That's especially right. with oil and gas, but also with uh, with coal mining. And with with all with water quality and everything, um, West Virginia is wild and wonderful. Mm. <laughs> it's wild and wonderful, and it has beautiful rolling hills and, and abundant water. But there's a dark secret that lies within West Virginia. Uh, we also have extractive industries, and many of those, and all basically all of those extractive industries, are both a blessing and a curse. They'll provide jobs for West Virginians, but they also will impact the health of the people working here and also impact the soil, air, and water quality of the land that's here. Even though people are coming here to uh, for, for our scenic beauty, they, they don't realize what the people in West Virginia are having to go through with the impacts from environmental degradation. Our natural resources are coal, oil, gas. We also have timbering. And with all of those, it affects our air, water, and land. We have uh, contamination from the chemicals, from the coal, coal mines, and also from the movement of the land, from the oil and gas industries. As they're drilling down, they're contaminating our groundwater as well as, as our air, because as the 
on, as the gas comes up, as the natural gas is vented out from the shell, um, it contaminates the air. People that who, who live closely around the, the drilling uh, platforms are affected. They have air quality issues. Um, we, we do need to do something and that's why we need our Senator Joe Manchin to help us in, in cleaning up the environment and, and, and making regulations that will be uh, beneficial to the people who are living here in West Virginia. All of our natural resources have also attracted other industries. Because of the, wa the abundant water for transportation, uh, in the beginning there we had salt mines here in West Virginia that also drew people here. And because of the natural gas industry, industry other manufacturing industries and chemical industries have moved in to the state. So what, so what we need to do is also uh, ask when the, when the states come in to, to do the cleanup or the federal government, which is sending the money in and people are saying we're getting all this money from federal government, we need to realize that a lot of that all that money that's coming back is just our taxpayer money. That's right. So the companies are not the ones that are cleaning it up. Mm. It is the people that are cleaning up. The, chem, the chemical industry and the coal mining industry are impacting people's lives. The, the coal is causing black lung. We heard about it in the past. Well, it's now back with a full vengeance for coal miners. Uh, so coal miners are now having more incidences of black lung. The, there's cancer rates from all the other industries combined. There's cancer, there's liver damage, there's neurological symptoms, there, there are immune system damages. Mm -hmm. And these are just to name a few. These extractive industries, as I said, contaminate not just uh, the workers that are there in the facilities, but also the people who live outside their fence lines. It's contaminating the air. Here in, here in Charleston, with our manufacturing, we have two sites here that are manufacturing ethylene, that, that are having emissions of ethylene oxide. Ethylene oxide is a carcinogen and it causes neurological damage, but it's also a mutagen, and it affects the children more so than the adults. In fact, uh, EPA just recently found out that it's 30 times more harmful than, than they thought it would be, and with the children, it's even more harmful because they have the developing systems. Not only is ethylene oxide here, but there are other chemicals that are, that are uh, because metabolic issues they also have cause endocrine their endocrine disruptors yeah and so we wonder what's going on in our environment it's not just us right these chemicals are affecting many who the, the most vulnerable people are the ones who live around the chemical plants these are the people of color African Americans Hispanics uh, low-income individuals, especially here in West Virginia. Many of these chemicals, as I said, affect the metabolic system right. and, and our endocrine disruptors. So we wondered why West Virginia has so many cancer rates, so many uh, people who are diabetic, so many people who have heart disease. Right. Heart disease is, is sort of part of uh, when, when you have problems breathing, it puts a pressure on, it causes pressure on the heart. And so we have, we have cardiopulmonary 
issues that are here in West Virginia, right. and it's a result of the chemical plants and, and other industries that are here. Right. It's not just because of the, the life that we choose or the things that we choose, whether we're smoking or whatever, because we had studies done back in the 1990s on, on school children and the children who lived in the valley, in, in the Kanawha Valley area, had more respiratory symptoms than the children who lived outside of the valley. That's right. And so therefore, it isn't just our, uh, an antidote of, of any kind. This is actually happening. It's scientific. And these are cumulative impacts. The, when, when the DEP gives an air permit to an industry, on, they only look at one unit. They don't take in the full cumulative impacts. That was Pam Nixon, an environmental advocate in West Virginia. Last, you're going to hear John Sokolow, who spoke at a rally in Richmond, Virginia, on the last day of the walk for Appalachia's future on June 4th. Hi, everybody. I'm John Sokolow. I'm from Northern Virginia, so-called Northern Virginia. Um, I'm inspired by you guys. I really am. I'm one of the old folks now. Um, but uh, to see young people involved and to be fighting this fight, um, I got involved myself in 2017, I guess, with the Mountain Valley Pipeline, and we brought new people in every year. I got involved myself because I had been um, sending aid where our family was collecting materials and sending it to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, way out west, and, and I'm somebody who tries to keep up with what's going on, and I didn't know in my own state that they were trying to build the Mountain Valley Pipeline and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. So I figured if I didn't know, and I'm somebody who tries to seek out this information, there's a lot of other people who don't know. So we started organizing in Northern Virginia. We got a lot of the politicians involved um, to, to speak out. This movement's been growing year after year. Um, and the, the message that I guess I would bring to these young folks and everybody else uh, is despite the lies that are being told about the Mountain Valley Pipeline, we are winning this fight. And the reason we know we're winning this fight is because Mountain Valley Pipeline has to lie to get its story across. Maury just mentioned, they say it's 90%, 95%, 97% complete. Their own documents that they file every week with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission says the pipeline is 55.8% complete. That's right. But they get reporters to repeat this lie that it's 90%, 95%. They're trying to, to make, it, make it seem as if it's inevitable. Um, so when the other side has to lie to get their point across, you know we're winning. If they were telling the truth, they would tell you that they have lost case after case in the federal courts and that they are missing the major permits they need to build this pipeline. If they were telling the truth, they would, say, they would tell you that they cannot cross any of the hundreds of water crossings in West Virginia or Virginia because they have no permits to do so. If they were telling the truth, they would tell you that the North Carolina Department of Environmental Protection has rejected the permit for the Southgate extension. So that's not happening. And they did that twice. If they were telling the truth, they would say they would tell you that the Lambert compressor station, which was supposed to connect the, the main line of the Mountain Valley Pipeline to Southgate, lost a permit in Virginia by a six to one vote of the Virginia Air Pollution Control Board. They don't want you to know these things because then you would know that they are losing and we are winning this fight. And the reason we are winning, it's not complicated. It's not just because we have great lawyers in court, although we do have great lawyers in court. It's not just because people are organizing. 
because people are in fact organizing all across these states. We are winning because we have truth on our side and we will never give up until this pipeline is dead and gone. So if people on the front lines can do this fight, if 13-year-olds can do this fight, we all can get involved. It's our future. It's our planet. We are winning, and with everybody's participation in actions like this, we will keep winning until this pipeline is in the history books. And the other reason we will know, and I'll just close with this, they told us the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which was a 600-mile, not a 300-mile pipeline, a 600-mile pipeline, that it was inevitable, it was a done deal, and it in fact was being being uh, sponsored by the major power broker in this state, Dominion Power, which basically owns politicians in both parties in this Commonwealth. And they told us that we couldn't fight it. Well, the, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is defeated and it is gone, it is in the history books, and it is because of meetings and actions just like the ones here, organizations, grassroots organizations, peoples and people in the community. So if you, if you take nothing else away from this action today, understand that your voice is powerful. And then if you keep speaking, and even if people are telling you you're not gonna win, and they're gonna lie to, do, to get that point across, just keep speaking out, keep fighting, and in the end, we will win. Thank you very much. That was John Sokolow, an attorney and MVP fighter in Richmond, Virginia. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, global and local perspectives on the environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here on WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.